So I absolutely don't like large events with lots of people, but I do love the sun run. Uh, Jim Presnell, who helped start River 33 years ago, and he planted a church in Lawrence about a decade ago, he started the sun run, I don't know, more than 25 years ago, and um, with a pretty small group, and, and now it's become one of the more popular runs um, for, for the running community, but it is a great chance to engage community for our church and other churches to engage the larger community. And so I hang out nowadays, uh, I mostly hang out with my grandkids and we have fun, but it's a, it's a great chance for, for us as a church to go and interface with the larger Wichita community and also to support Youth Horizons, which we've been a part of since, since we started, since they started. Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme allied commander of the war in Europe, and he oversaw the largest logistics feat in human history called Operation Overlord the, that began on what we call D-Day. So two million men were landed on the European continent in about two months, and each soldier required about 41 pounds of daily supplies from fuel to food to bullets, so 40,000 tons of supplies a day. That's quite the logistics feat. And he had to deal with an enormous number of real-world details. For instance, the terrible fact that the number of body bags that were estimated to be needed fell far short of actual requirements. So Eisenhower had to deal with the facts. Of course, he had a massive team, but he still was the guy in lead. He had to deal with reality as it is. Lives, really civilization as we know it, depended on it. Yet Eisenhower kept seven lucky coins in his pocket that he rubbed continuously. And you can say, well, that's just a nervous habit. I don't think so. I mean, historically, it's more likely he actually was superstitious. And I've known many a smart and successful leader who believed in superstitions. And if I quiz them, do you really think rubbing that coin or knocking on wood impacts events in the world? They would nervously laugh and then keep knocking on wood and rubbing those coins. So what if Eisenhower, as, as he rubbed his seven lucky coins, had refused to accept realities that he did not like as he led the Allies against a murderous tyranny? What if he trusted lucky coins, not the actual facts? Well, it wouldn't have gone well. He lived on the right side of the what is real and what do I want to be real spectrum. And so he rubbed his lucky coins, hoping it would impact the weather. It didn't. And so he submitted to the facts of the weather as they actually were. He trusted his weathermen, not the, the lucky coins. So he delayed the D-Day landing, for instance. So Hitler, on the other hand, lived almost entirely in a wish world. He especially at the end of the war. Reality didn't matter to him, and his commanders, some of them learned the hard way, uh, they were killed because they brought him the facts of reality, and those facts contradicted what he wanted to be true. And as the Allies surrounded Berlin, he took his own life in a bunker. Reality in the end won. It always does. Something is true, and everything that is not that is untrue. If it's true that all that exists is stuff... If materialism or atheism is true, then it is untrue that anything ultimately matters. If atheism is true, then it is untrue that your life has purpose, meaning that love is a real thing other than just some chemical byproduct of your brain. If it's true that all roads lead to one, that all religions are true in their own way, then it's untrue that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. Something is true, and everything that's not that is untrue, and there's no way around this. And it's not a question of what we want to be true or how we feel about what is true. It's always only a question of what is actually true. So if we don't like the idea of 
uninspired, authoritative Bible, if we don't like the idea of a triune God, a Savior on a cross paying for human sin, a hell, okay. But what does that have to do with what is what we want or hope to be true have to do with what's actually true? Really nothing at all. And this should seem controversial, but then we humans, we like our lucky coins. And it's commonly believed, it's, it's irrational, but it's commonly believed the truth is something we can make conform to our demands. Now, there are times when we have strong feelings like, I don't want this to be true. And that's a different thing. That's an emotional response. It's normal, especially when we suffer. And I've said before, I've talked before about a terrible night where I sat up all night with a young lady whose husband of 48 hours had an aneurysm in his brain, and he was gone. He was kept alive by machines. But the reason I sat with her through the long night was to give her time to come to grips was something she desperately did not want to be true. And in the morning, she reluctantly accepted a difficult truth. And when we, ex- when we attempt to live our lives refusing to submit to what's true, when we're trying to live our lives outside of reality, things don't go well for us. And most of us live in a sort of halfway house between wishful thinking and reality. But those who live entirely in their own wish world cease to function in the real world. Peter was convinced for good reason that Jesus is the center of reality, that what Jesus said about life and death and purpose and meaning was truth, that Jesus was more than a moral teacher, more than an example to be followed. He is the meaning of human existence. He's the creator of the universe, the Lord. And he is also, as we sang, creator of the universe and then friend of sinners. He's alive, able to be loved and related to still. So he's the meaning of human history going backward and forward. And this is astounding. It's always been controversial. His exclusive claims aren't just controversial in 2023. They were controversial in AD 33. Again, everyone believes that something is true and real and what is not that is untrue. And Jesus is the singularity in human history who conclusively determines what it means to live our lives inside of reality. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you've not yet committed your life to Christ or you're unsure about where you stand with him, if you have yet to be what Jesus called born again, then I pray, and I've been praying that you would see that as the first step of living inside of reality. If you've not chosen to follow Christ, I pray that you would today or very soon and that you would know you don't drift into the kingdom. You have to place your faith in Christ. And the ongoing choice to not choose is an ongoing choice. If you're unsure about what that looks like, then talk to me or talk to a friend who knows Christ. If you have been born again, if you're a follower of Christ, then my prayer has been that you would move further into faith as we walk through 1 Peter. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be, to the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop with that introduction first. Praising God is essential when we're weighed down by suffering. And the, the church that Peter was writing to was enduring trouble. It was about to get worse. And they really needed to make praise reflexive. When you've had surgery or when you've been very sick, the last thing you want to do is move. But it's really important that you move to get better. And it can be true, often is true, that offering praise to God during times of deep trouble is like trying to get up and move after surgery. But it has to be done if we're to live in the world as it is. It has to be done if we're going to regain hope and regain perspective. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God has given us new birth through Christ into a living hope. A living thing grows. He, he was intentional about not just calling it a hope, but a living hope. A living thing increases, it develops over time, and that's our hope. And this ongoing increase in hope over time is one of the evidences of spiritual growth. Many older Christians find that their hope increases as they approach death, and this is not surprising because our hope is alive, it's growing. Our inheritance is eternally secure, and he gives some words to describe our inheritance. He calls it imperishable. It's not susceptible to decay. It won't suffer the ravages of time. We don't have to try to hold on to it, worry that it will slip away. It's undefiled. It can't be spoiled or tainted by human sin. Every one of God's good gifts he gave us are prone to be misused and defiled. We mess them up. This inheritance will not turn bad in the end. It's unfading. It will never lose its appeal or its beauty. We won't get tired of it. We won't wish for more. It's kept in heaven for you. The verb indicates a completed past action by God with results that continue into the present. So we don't have to wonder, will something change? What if I give my life to this? Is it going to fail me in the end? No. So praise God, he's given us new birth through Christ into a living hope. Our inheritance is eternally secure, and it doesn't depend on our ability to endure. Peter's readers had to wonder, like we often do, if they would be able to endure the trials if they became more and more intense. And Peter assures him that they're being guarded by God's power. In the words of military, when God's power stands guard over our faith. And there have been times when I've wondered if I will have the ability to stay faithful through what's happening to me or what I think might happen to me. And during those times, I've quoted Paul to myself over and over and over. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether through life or death. And I just mull that over in my mind. Let that truth attack those fears. Who knows if he or she can be faithful no matter what happens? And you can say, Terry, don't you trust God? I absolutely do. I just don't trust me. And I know God is sufficient, but will I trust him when I most need to trust him? And so many times I've taken that passage over and over in my mind. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. So my expectation, my hope is not in my faith, not in my endurance, but God's promise to stand guard over my faith. And so what I do is today I trust God that I'll be able to trust God when I most need to trust God. And I'll have sufficient, which means enough courage. I would like kind of kick down the door kind of courage, but what I'm promised is sufficient enough, enough to honor Christ in life and death. And we kind of hope God would just give us this kick down the door courage ahead of time, but then we wouldn't have to keep trusting him, which is going to be essential when we need to trust him. And I tend to do well thinking about trusting God in the future when I'm actively trusting God in the present. So Peter's giving the same kind of encouragement here. We're being kept by God's power until the final act of our salvation. And Peter's described here the full course of salvation. Justification, we have been saved. He's caused us to be born again. That's his work. Sanctification, we are being saved. We're, this is a living hope, growth over, growth over time, collaboration with God. And then glorification, we will be saved. We're being guarded until that salvation is completed in the last time. 
So this is three movements in a single salvation sonata. Sonata, or to use last week's phrase, this is inaugurated eschatology. It's already not yet. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, in this, refers to what we've talked about so far. All this is your cause for rejoicing. It's your cause for thanking God. Even though now, for a little while, when necessary, we're grieved by trials. And Peter is assuming that this continual rejoicing in heavenly realities is going to be a normal part of the Christian's life. Or more likely, he's casting vision for it to become a normal part of our lives. And if this is not our experience, then we're supposed to see this as something to move towards. And so three things about this passage. He's speaking comparatively, compared to eternity when he writes for a little while. Paul uses the phrase light and momentary when comparing our grief now to the timeless and weighty glory of eternity. And we all know that when we're being grieved by trials, time comes to a stop. There's nothing little while about them. There's little while when we're on vacation, little while when we're watching a good movie, little while when we're sleeping, but when we're suffering grief, it's not a little while. But this is part of what an eternal perspective can do. It can help us see our temporary grief that seems to go on and on and on with eternity in mind. He's not saying that time will perspective-wise speed up, but that it will lead to growing our hopes even during times that grieve us. And he qualifies these trials as when necessary. This means that God has a larger purpose in them. They're not random. They're not arbitrary. It's not just stuff happens. Our trials are sometimes necessary for God's purposes. We don't always know what those purposes are in detail. But he reveals part of that purpose here. He said, the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So somehow, even these necessary trials that we don't understand are going to result in glory for Christ. He says, our faith is more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire. Now, gold is unable to be destroyed by fire. It's an amazing metal and Peter was aware that gold doesn't burn but at the end of all things even gold will will not survive only faith trust in God will and our faith is more precious than gold it alone is going to survive death in the end of all things and our faith when God sees necessary to test it and we have to trust him it will lead to God's glory in the end Again, it's this in perspective. And then we're grieved for a little while in various trials. So it's not just terrible physical suffering. It's not just Nero crucifying people. It's not just loss that's unbearable. I think he intentionally used a phrase that covers all the things that might grieve us. Because we're not to compare our grief and suffering to that of others. We're not supposed to rack and stack and rank our grief. Mine is worse. What's wrong with them? Theirs is worse. What's wrong with me? We can't turn our focus to self. We can't compare self to others. This isn't going to lead to resilient hope. In all of what grieves us, we're to turn to God in praise. And we're to train ourselves to keep giving continual thanks for our enduring inheritance. We're to train ourselves to give thanks. God has given us new birth. Our inheritance is eternally secure. It doesn't depend on our strength to endure. And we have this hope these things as this objective reality, these things are independent of our moods and emotions. Whether we feel hopeful or not, we have hope. But then again, this is a living hope. It's a growing, living relationship. It's not less than facts, but it's not just facts. So here's a fact. I married Christy in Joplin, Missouri in 1983. That's a fact. 
That's a pretty meager description of my marriage, though. It's more than fact. My love for her has grown in my experience, in my heart. My feelings for her are deeper, more mature. Our relationship is a fact that could be written on a piece of paper, stated in a sentence, but it's, of course, much more than that fact. And what Peter writes next is, for me, one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible. I first memorized it over 40 years ago, and I've molded over in my mind many times, and I, I can't get my mind around it. He wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's just a fascinating passage to me. And what Peter writes here is connected to what's come before it. This experience he writes of is tied to the continual rejoicing in heavenly realities that Peter expects or he's casting vision to be a part of the normal Christian life. And this experience of joy he's talking about here is directly tied to the choice to keep giving thanks for our enduring inheritance, keep setting our thoughts on eternity. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter had seen Jesus. They had not. And though they had not seen him, they loved him. And though they didn't see him walking around, Asia Minor, amongst them, they put their faith in him, and they were experiencing, some of them at least, or they could, a joy that's inexpressible. And this joy, Peter writes, was a practical, experiential aspect of their salvation. If our salvation is already not yet, full joy is not yet, but this joy is already. And knowing that the first century church was made up of people just like us, I think this is partly Peter casting vision for what could be. You guys could be experiencing this. Some were no doubt living in that experiential joy. Some probably were not yet. Some were probably phasing in and out. And that leads me to an important point of perspective. Don't discount something you read in Scripture because it hasn't been your experience. I had a friend who struggled deeply with doubt because he wasn't having the same experiences with God that some around him had, or at least he thought they were having. Part of that was he was so focused on comparing his experience to others, which is usually not a good idea. Part of it was he, he didn't mature long enough, he didn't endure long enough to experience kind of the mature fruits of God. He was comparing himself with people who'd walk longer than he had. Maturing is enduring. Enduring is maturing. And Friday night I had dinner with two friends, and one of them spoke about how his time with God has just become has been full has become full of deep and inexpressible joy. We weren't even talking about this passage, but he described this passage. You might say, Well, I want that. Well, that's great. He's he's older than I am. He's suffered ten times more than I have. He's shown up, trusted God. So his experience of depth with God is directly tied to what Peter said about continuing to trust God and praise God in the face of all kinds of griefs. So there's no accident that those two things are tied together. So be careful to not discount something you've not yet experienced. Start with God's word, not your own experience. A fruit tree has to mature to bear fruit. And often what happens in a believer's life is there's an initial burst of emotion, passion, enthusiasm when we come to Christ, which is all good. It's like you plant a fruit tree and that little green sprout comes up. You're so excited. There's something green alive and growing. You're going, where's the, where's the peach? There's no peaches on that thing. Well, this, that, that period, exciting period of new growth gives way to the longer, longer time of the trunk and branches developing the strength to sustain the coming fruit. The green wood turns brown. This is not an exciting period at all for most people. 
and some people check out before fruit appears. That's why Paul warned in Galatians, don't become weary in doing good. At the proper time, you reap a harvest if you don't give up. In God's time, you reap a harvest if you don't give up. So how do we make this experience more fully, consistently ours? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you're experiencing his joy. We have to ask the question, how do you love someone you've not seen? Can you love someone you've not seen? You can. I mean, my love for Christy tends to be more intense when I'm away from her for long periods of time. And the person who's never had been, person who's been blind from birth still loves people. And then people who were with Jesus in person, they saw him. Many of them didn't love him, didn't believe in him. So seeing is not believing. Seeing is not loving. Not seeing is, doesn't mean you can't love. What's essential for loving is knowing. Do you, how, and how do you know him is the question. How do these people, Peter said, though you haven't seen him, you love him. How did they know him? Well, they, know, they knew him through his word. And keep in mind, they were, they were reading. Maybe they had the Gospel of Mark by then, maybe. Um, but they had the Old Testament. All of the Bible is God's word. And we'll see this more fully next week when we talk about how the prophets pointed toward, toward Jesus. But if you want to love Jesus, you have to spend time reading his word, the Bible. There you'll learn what he values, his will, his ways. You'll see the epic design he has for bringing humans to Christ. In the next chapter, Peter writes like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so you may grow up in your salvation. The spiritual milk is God's word. And again, the Old Testament at the time, mostly. And so if you want to know and love him, learn to read and understand his word. That class um, Trace's teaching is not for scholars. If you saw that big old book and you went, gulp, I don't want that. Uh, you don't have to read the book. Uh, just come to the class. And, and you're not going to be made to give, stand up and give presentations. You know, sometimes people feel like I'm not as far along as others. And so I don't want to go be exposed. So I'm not going to do the things that would help me be further along. You see that vicious cycle Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody, everybody's a work in progress. The most important book I ever read concerning the Bible is a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I read it 40 years ago and several times since. So many books I've read fed me fish. That book taught me how to fish. And so it's worth the effort to understand the Bible. You have to know Jesus as he's revealed himself in his word, the Bible. And then you can learn to love him through his people. You can learn to love him by spending time with people who know him. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't stop mean together. Because some people have and they've been hardened by sin. So as you see what he's done in the lives of others, you can love him because you see his goodness there. And Friday night, two of my oldest friends got together. And we weren't even talking about this passage, but we sort of started telling stories about what God had done. And when the evening was over, I had more affection for my friends and more affection for Jesus. Philemon 1.6 says, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. And it's talking about evangelism, but also just talking to others about your faith, even those who are believers. As we talk about the goodness of God to one another, we have a fuller understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. And then the third way that we love him is we obey him. Even now, Peter said, you believe in him. And he's not saying, belief there is not, an, not intellectual assent. It's not like you believe in him like you believe in gravity. That word belief is you place your confidence in him, meaning you're 
Even now, you don't see him, you're obeying him. Love grows experientially as we obey him. Our hearts emotionally follow our investments. So as we give our time, our efforts, our resources to what he's called us to, the living hope grows. And so if we engage people for the sake of the gospel in evangelism, in discipleship, in relationship, which is a key part of of obedience, then our hope is going to grow. This inexpressible joy can come. John 7, 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of them will flow rivers of living water. And so the idea is, you know, we've got this infusion of life, the Holy Spirit, God pouring his life into us. And if we stop it, then it stagnates. The the flow stops. If there's an outflow, and the outflow is expressed in personal ministry, it wasn't just... It wasn't just exuberant bursts of emotion. The idea was that the living water was going to be giving your life away for people. So what does Peter mean by you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls? It means our experience of salvation is already, is, it's already not yet, but it's not just not yet. It's already. Some of it's now. It's happening now. So while we're not to chase experiences or emotions, this is a trap and a diversion but as we choose to give God praise for enduring inheritance, as we set our minds, as Paul wrote on things above, as we live lives of engagement with people, then we are, we can experience God in real and personal ways. Our hope and our joy will be a living, growing thing. Now imagine, and it, it can impact our lives. Now imagine if you have been planning a trip for years, many, many years, and you've been thinking about it, you've been saving your pennies, you've been investing energy in it you study what you're going to do you got the maps out you know where you're going to go and you long for it I can't wait the joy of all that investment in a future event can impact you now so think about it everybody's probably done something like that and maybe it's a cold stressful dark day in February and you're just going you're just plodding through you're kind of joyless and all of a sudden you start thinking about that trip and you your heart gets infused with a little bit of joy That's how the human heart is wired. And what we're to set our hopes on is something that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's a future reality that can impact your life now if you keep setting your minds there. So as spiritual, physical hybrids, we have to think carefully about joy. It's an objective reality independent of our feelings, and it's also an emotional experience that's part of our lives now. And so how do we keep those things in in balance? The Second Great Awakening was a a series of events that occurred around 1790 to 1840. It had a profound spiritual and cultural impact on the nation. It occurred in metro areas. It occurred on some college campuses like Yale. But mostly it was rural areas where thousands would gather uh, out in these open spaces to hear preaching. I'm convinced it was a remarkable work of God. At the same time, there was a lot of theological and moral distortion in the movement. Whenever God and human are involved, there's always going to be the human distortion. And the enemy is always going to try to take things and, take, and, and turn them south. At some of the large rural events, they had a sort of county fair feel. Prostitutes would sometimes position themselves on the perimeter to collect customers coming off their emotional and maybe legitimately spiritual high. Their experience made them more vulnerable. If you've heard or, or heard of or seen the movie Jesus Revolution, the same kind of things happened during that time period. And I'm not saying this to shock you or make you cynical. I'm saying we are hybrids. 
and our emotions are a part of us as embodied spiritual beings. I had a, um, a friend who, his brothers walked away from the faith, and he used to play in a Christian band, and, and there was a certain, and he was a drummer, and there was a certain song. He had become a skeptic, but he was still playing in this Christian band, and he would, he would, do, he would just do certain things to add some emotion to the song, and then he would watch the people in the crowd. They would cheer or raise their hands or whatever. And, and he'd just be like, see, there's nothing real here. I can make them do that by how I play the drums. And like, no, dude, what's happening is you're, you're, these are hybrids, physical, spiritual hybrids. And um, independent of you, some of them are worse than God. Maybe some of them is pure emotion. But you can't, you can't necessarily... S- Divide it all out. Our emotions are part of who we are as, imbi- as embodied spiritual being. And God was at work in these movements, but it can be a very short distance between an emotion as a result of experiencing God and emotion that drives terrible human behaviors. Acts chapter 2, a lot of emotions going on. Some of the emotions were people were getting saved. Some people were like, what's going on? And some were the emotions of anger as they were skeptical of what they were seeing. And so if you feel you lack what Peter calls an inexpressible and glorious joy, what are you to do? What do you not do? Well, my opinion is you don't seek feelings of joy. You don't chase emotions. Pursue Jesus. Peter told us what to do. He didn't say, make sure you get this inexpressible and glorious joy. He said, pursue God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. Praise God for what he's done for you in Christ. Rejoice in God even though you have to grieve all kinds of trials. Pursue God like this, and joy will pursue you. Deep faith roots lead to these experiential faith fruits. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. I've been asked what I think of the recent revival at Asbury College. Probably most of you heard of it. Some of you haven't. It's a, it's a, a revival movement that occurred on a college campus. It's almost identical to what happened in 1970 at the same college. And my thoughts are, first of all, it doesn't really matter what I think, you know, it just, but, but my thoughts, that I've told, what I've told people is I, I said, I think ideally there would be no need for revival if Christians lived in vival. And revival means to come alive again. That's what the, the etymology of the word is. And I'm not being cynical. I mean, that would be the ideal situation biblically. There wouldn't need a need to restore life if we lived in life. And, um, and revival... Historically, revival is a word we use for believers, believers coming alive again. Awakenings is a word we use to describe larger movements in culture where Christians and non-Christians and large social structures are changed by the gospel. But since there is often a need for revival, spiritual life, coming back alive again, the most important measurement of whether something really profound happened would be the fruit of that event in a year or 10 or 20 And so it's impossible to say, really, what's the fruit of what happened this year, this month, very accurately. I've had experiences with God that you couldn't explain in merely human means. If a scientist came and watched it and tried to measure it, he couldn't explain this apart from God. But those experiences have never been a result of seeking experience. There was time in life where I sought experiences, and all I had was just experience of seeking experiences. And these experiences have never fixed me, meaning some of the most profound, unexplainable experiences the next morning, I still had to get up and choose to have a quiet time, choose to trust Jesus, 
choose to be morally pure and choose to love my wife. No experience is going to transport you from the already to the not yet except for the experience of death. <laughs> so there is no, no matter how profound it is, you're going to stay in the already, not yet. Lonnie Frisbee, one of the key figures in the movement described in the Jesus Revelation, Revolution movie, he died of AIDS as a result of returning to his formal immoral lifestyle of drugs and illicit sex. This doesn't mean that his conversion wasn't real. It doesn't mean that God didn't use him. It means that there is such a thing as revival and there's such a thing as unvival. Turning away from a life with Christ back to the death ways of the old life, it doesn't mean he lost his salvation. It just means, I don't, I don't know, God only knows, but it means he went back to the old death ways. So grow your hope, pursue Jesus. If you collect some emotions, then put them in your backpack and keep walking. Emotions and experiences might sometimes be the fruit, but they're never going to be the root of your faith. And so I want, to, I want to encourage you and challenge you, don't become a skeptic of experience and don't become an experience addict. Those are bad paths. Both of them are. So what I think is the right path, Peter gave it to us. Rejoice in God, though you may have to suffer grief and trials. Love him, though you have not seen him. We've already talked about what that looks like. And obey him, though you do not see him now. And then be filled with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving already the salvation of your soul. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a minute to talk to God, reflect on, there's a lot here, just reflect on it, and then we're going to worship him.